Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know about a very special event we've got coming up. Spiked will be returning to the Battle of Ideas, Britain's premier ideas festival where free speech truly reigns. While we're there, Spiked will be recording a very special live edition of this podcast. That'll be on Saturday, the 28th of October at 12.15pm. For the pods, joining me will be Tom Slater, as per usual, plus some special guests, including Constantin Kissin, Ricky Bassan, and Inaya Falarin Iman. Now, if you haven't got your ticket already to the Battle of Ideas, then now is the time to get one. It won't just be our podcast. We'll also be recording a special edition of Last Orders with Tom Slater, Chris Snowden, and special guests to come. Plus, across the weekend, there will be loads of spiked writers speaking on all kinds of panels, as well as hundreds of other fascinating thinkers. To get your ticket for the Battle of Ideas, just go to battleofideas.org.uk and while you're there, you can use the promo code SPIKED to get yourself 20% off a ticket. That's battleofideas.org.uk and the promo code SPIKED to get yourself a 20% off discount. See you at the event. Hello and welcome back to the Spike Podcast. I'm Lauren Smith, filling in for Fraser this week. And joining me in the studio today is Tom Slater, editor of Spiked. Hello. And Luke Gittos, Spiked columnist. Hi. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be discussing Bushy Sunak's dearth of vision, the scourge of knife crime in London, and the silencing of BLM critics. So the Conservative Party conference wrapped up on Wednesday this week. And it has been a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to announcements and various policy proposals. Um, Rishi Sunak closed out the conference with his big speech, supposedly laying out this vision that he has for the nation. Um, And what that seems to have amounted to is uh, scrapping the northern leg of uh, high-speed rail, Mm -hmm. too. Um, So it will no longer go to Manchester. It's only going to Birmingham. Um, So, Tom, what do you make of this slightly anticlimactic end to the uh, party conference here and the sort of defeatist turn that we've taken? No, it certainly felt that way. I mean, if your big vision, as you say, amounts to scrapping a major infrastructure project or at least railing it back significantly, then you do have to wonder where the vision is. I mean, of course, he tries to do this kind of laundry list of other infrastructural projects in the North and the Midlands. Um, He also lent into a couple of big policy announcements, which I'm sure we'll get into. But despite there were... There was this, this enthusiasm amongst the kind of right of centre commentators that maybe he'd kind of finally found his groove, his mojo. That seemed to amount in that speech to just the same dull bank manager shtick, but just with a few more kind of pumped up quasi populist points attached. I think it doesn't really obscure the fact that what you have in Rishi Sunak is sort of the antithesis of what we thought politics was becoming, certainly within the Conservative Party for some time which is something that was at least trying in a slightly awkward dad-dancing way to appeal to the electorate, to appeal to these demands for their own values to be reflected in politics, for their concerns to be met. And yet what you got was revamping A-levels and um, another repackaged version of kind of northern infrastructure projects and an attempt to resell that. So pretty thin gruel, I thought. Um, and the stuff that was a bit more substantial was dreadful, like the smoking ban stuff, which we may well get onto. Yeah, so I actually wanted to talk about the smoking ban. Um, more good news, it seems, from the Conservative uh, Party conference this year. So essentially, Rishi Sunak has announced that he wants to implement a kind of phased smoking ban. This will basically amount to something similar to what New Zealand has agreed to introduce last year. And what this means essentially is that every year, the uh, 
age that you are allowed to buy cigarettes will increase by one year. Um, and eventually we'll get to a point where anyone born after a certain year will no longer be allowed to smoke, even if they are over 18. Um, so Luke, what do you make of this kind of crazy, uh, very paternalistic plan here by Sunak? Well, I don't think we should understand this as a phased smoking ban because it's actually far more sinister. What is being proposed is effectively a two-tier legal system. What I mean by that is if you project forward 30 years, you will have two groups of adults in this country, the first of which will be able to buy cigarettes mm. and the latter of which will not, based on when they were born. That will mean that every smoker would have to carry identity card of some kind, an identity card of some kind, in order to be able to purchase cigarettes. It would mean two adults having different rights to make particular decisions based on when they were born. That's not a ban. That's a segregated legal system. It's appalling and it's draconian and it has no precedent. So it's true that on the whole, Rishi Sunak's ideas were pretty limp, but we need to recognize this for what it is, which is an incredibly draconian shift in the way that the government controls our behavior. And I think it's extremely worrying what is being proposed would, as I say, create two classes of citizens. And we've not seen that before in any of the other public health interventions. Sunak has described this as the biggest public health intervention in generations. It's probably bigger than that. It's an unprecedented change in the way that the law works. And I think it has to be resisted. No, I think that's an important point. And also, it's a reminder of that this kind of politics of lifestyle regulation, which obviously New Labour really turned into an art, was so much of a kind of... Pro product of a kind of general lack of vision you know you kind of had Labour Party in particular in that instance you know essentially stepping away from any sense of responsibility for say regulating the economy but at the same time now deciding that regulating our lifestyles is a much more effective important thing to do and in, in a strange sort of way I think you see that with Sunak you know he admits that he can't really do very much but what he can do is introduce this incredibly draconian and as you also suggest Luke sort of discriminatory system in relation to smoking what's so depressing about it is how little pushback this kind of generates because this has been the direction of travel for so long i mean in terms of the sin taxes which have been piled on cigarettes in terms of the smoking ban in terms of the kind of encroachment further and further on people's ability to just in their own time increasingly just in their own homes it's increasingly difficult to smoke anywhere uh to make decisions for themselves this idea that the state has to take on that um busybody puritanical role is now just the sort of muscle memory of the political class it's something that kind of all wings of the labor party agree on it's something that increasingly much of the tory party happens to agree on and it, it, i i have two competing feelings about it one of which is that it's so incredibly draconian it, you know pro, it, prohibition in this day and age just seems like such an anachronism and outrageous but at the same time it's also slightly pathetic it's almost like we've given up trying to do the big things we can't build a railway but we can stop today's 18 year old from smoking it's ridiculous but you can't help but think that surely a policy like this is just going to fall fall over under the base of its own absurdity you know like a 61 year old trying to catch cigarettes off a 62 year old outside of an off license in many years hence but we can only hope but this is something that's happening around the world as well it's not just britain where this is taking place i think you could apply the same argument to the a-level reforms which look very big and very substantial but in terms of actual content of what education will look like really it's people learning maths until they're 18 yeah. and some uh, at the moment there's very little detail on how on, on what vision for education this actually entails i think tom's right um lifestyle interference was always a symptom um of a lack of vision about other things and i think that's what we've seen in this speech not exactly glowing reviews for the 
Tories here. No, uh, no. I mean, <laughs> we should talk about some of the things which have been striking about this conference, which, uh, you know, speak to some of our preoccupations. I guess, I, I suppose, the um, some of the speeches around uh, gender ideology has been a striking feature of a lot of the speeches at conference. Obviously, you had Suella Braveman talking about um, stopping the ability for sex offenders to transition and thereby essentially evade the restrictions that have been placed on them. It's been an outrageous loophole, which has been exploited time and time again. Again, that's welcome. Steve Barkley standing up and saying we're going to have sex segregated wards again, which was with games always a kind of striking thing where that used to be a, the fact that you couldn't maintain kind of sex separated wards used to be a fact of shame for various health secretaries, but slowly it got rebranded as actually quite a woke progressive thing to do as the gender ideology stuff started to take hold. And similarly, it was interesting that Sunak made a pointed um, gesture towards the whole gender discussion in his speech by talking about we're not going to be bullied into believing that people can just change sex. Um, but at the moment, you know, first of all, on or even on the areas that the Tory party is potentially a bit better than the Labour party, whether we're talking about um, extreme kind of net zero ideology or extreme gender ideology, often when you look at the detail of what they're doing, it isn't very much. They still haven't issued this guidance for schools on transgender transgenderism and social transitioning uh again the net zero announcements a couple of weeks ago they made a lot of noise but they didn't amount to very much at the same time so what we've really got is the same old technocratic stodge but just with a few nods and winks to concerns that the electorate hold it's nice to see <laughs> that the overton window has been slightly moved open in those areas but surely not enough to you know make this a viable political project in any meaningful sense you know i think that the gender discussion is starting to feel a bit real political by which i mean it's like, oh, can you define what a woman is? Mm -hmm. And of course, the Tories are very proud of the fact that they think that they can and that they make content about how they can and Labour can't. And I think it is an open goal for them. They've identified this as a cultural war issue about which probably the vast majority of the public are bemused by and wonder why our politicians can't define what a woman is and can't be straightforward about it. So I think it's kind of a sensible electoral tactic. The question will be whether they can push forward some real review of, for example, the Equalities Act to reflect uh, the kind of dividing lines that they want to enact. You know, the equality law in this area does create some real difficulties. Um, so whether they're able to kind of garner, you know, to, to tackle the really serious legal questions that they're talking about. Um, yeah. And as you mentioned, the kind of the guidance and um, the 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 fact that people can still find themselves in real hot water for speaking out about this stuff uh, is is really problematic. So the question now is what they practically do about it, rather than just say, well, I can define a woman, can you? Now, we should probably also talk about, in other news, the um, very tragic case of Eliane Andam, the 15-year-old girl who was um, fatally stabbed at um, by a bus stop in Croydon uh, last week. On Wednesday evening, we saw thousands of people come out um and attend a vigil in Eliane's name. Um, this is a truly, truly uh, shocking case. And it really seems as if it has touched a nerve um, with so many people in a way that um, similar incidences haven't. Um, and Luke, why do you think that is? Why, why Eliane in particular? I don't know, because Eliane is not, I'm afraid, um, unique. She's certainly not the only person to have died in recent years because of her feelings. You know, we know in this case, it looks as though the person arrested um, turned up with a bunch of roses and has reacted badly to being romantically rejected. It brought to mind for me the killing um, in 2018 of Harry Yokoza, 
uh, a young man who was stabbed to death during a fight over a, a young woman. It was about her feelings. It was about uh, self-esteem. And in 2018, I followed quite a lot of the cases, which, as you suggest, kind of flitted in and out of the news. And a lot of them were about her feelings. Um, time and time again, young people in our inner cities are getting drawn into violent confrontations over their emotions and over their feelings. And I think it's the thing that no one's talked about. <clears throat> we like to talk about this as though it's gang crime. The word that people use is gang crime. When you look at the detail, often these are just groups of young friends, um, predominantly, I'm afraid, black and Asian young men in our inner cities who um, think it is okay to kill over personal insult and personal affront. Um, you know, Harry Okoza was not the only one. I'm, you know, throughout that year, that 2018 was a particularly bad year for knife crime in London. Thankfully, it's dropped off to some extent in recent years. We've seen a, a reduction this year. It's not as violent as it was in 2018. But this problem is very real. And I think what we need to start doing is looking at the detailed circumstances behind each of these cases and see that um, often these are young men who see life as very cheap and see life as disposable and have nothing to counteract that narrative. And the other really important point to make is, I think what's not said often enough is how wider society and particularly liberal, predominantly white commentators have perhaps inadvertently provided a moral justification for these killings. Because I think we have too often given these young people the idea that their society is built against them, that society is structurally racist, that they have no possibility of advancing, that the police are against them, that the courts have, and legal system have been built to discriminate against them. And if you deeply hold those beliefs, if you deeply believe that following the law and following society's moral code has nothing for you, then perhaps violence is excusable. If you've grown up in a society that so openly loathes you, then society, then violence does have at least an explanation. I think we need to reserve, reverse that narrative very, very urgently. We need to <clears throat> recognise that this is not a problem within the black community, which is something we say often. It's a problem with our city communities. It's a problem, it's a civic problem. It's a breakdown of our civic engagement. And what I mean by that is we all should bear responsibility, those living in our cities, to give these young people a sense of meaning and purpose to their lives. I think we're failing to do that. And what we're doing instead is giving a horrible, blinkered moral justification to their actions. And I think it's tragic. And wouldn't you say it's ironic that we live in an age where the political discussion is so often dominated by the slogan of Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, on the face of it, it seems that we should be more dedicated than ever to um, solving the problems of racial inequality. And yet when it comes to things like crime, where it is often um, young black teenagers who are most affected by it, we don't seem to want to tackle that. Why do you think this is such a politically un uncomfortable topic? Why are we not seeing the same kind of um, urgency mm -hmm. about solving this? I think it's outrageous. And I think as um, Luke was gesturing to there and has written up about before, this blind spot is so profound. Because if you think about the sort of discussions around racial inequality we have, it can be such trivial 
things. Things which can often be around questions of hurt feelings, cultural appropriation, all of these kind of nonsense stuff which have become, rightly so, the subject of kind of tabloid mockery that's so ridiculous. And yet when you talk about a profound racial inequality, like, for instance, the victims of teenage violent and sometimes lethal crime in a city like London, uh, there's crickets. It amounts to a form of racist negligence at a certain point. And this is something that you see mirrored in America as well with the flare-up of violent crime in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement there as a consequence of ridiculous anti-policing measures which were not really very well thought through and even more poorly implemented. Um, it, because it's very easy for the commentariat to turn their backs away from this particular issue, it doesn't really affect them. Um, they don't think of these people really deep down in a strange sort of way as um, their own, as members of their own community. And that's something which I think is, is makes it so important that we do confront it in the way and on the terms that Luke is talking about to treat this as almost like a kind of sectional identity issue. It affects this community and not that other one. Tells you something about how we got here in the first place. I am continually struck, and it's not a new point, about the paucity of the debate in this particular area. Because what I find it funny is that on the one hand, you have kind of liberal left commentators who talk about how complicated it is. And it is very complicated. Luke, you've gestured to some of the factors there, this kind of culture of hurt feelings and self-esteem matched with various kind of socioeconomic factors in relation to family structure, all different things which have been debated and reports have been written about. And yet they'll then often boil it down to the most absurd, politically salient points. So they'll say, for them, salient points. They'll say things like, of course, the old canard around its youth centres. If this... The, gen the young gentleman who was alleged to have committed this nihilistic crime, if he had been able to play table tennis the night before in some church hall somewhere, he wouldn't have brought a zombie knight to school and stabbed an innocent younger. This is absurd on the face of it, but all this stuff always gets repeated. And then what's been interesting is that not least because of the fact this is the alleged perpetrator in this case was a young man and obviously the, the victim was a young woman that suddenly Andrew Tate makes its way into the conversation. You know, so, oh, the tabloid, the commentary at Fodder of a couple of weeks ago, we can just map that on because we can talk about misogyny. We're very comfortable talking about these kinds of issues. So I am always very struck by the strange contrast between the seriousness of the problem, the urgency of the need to deal with it. Um, any society, any city which allows such nihilistic crime to become just a sort of background noise of city life. There aren't many cases of these, but any of them should horrify us. I think any city that allows that to happen, any society that allows that to happen has completely lost the moral plot. And yet our discussion about it is either sort of silence or nonsense. And I don't know what, if this case can't shake people out of that, I don't know what will really. And wouldn't you say there is also this kind of blaming it on youth centres or blaming it on Andrew Tate, doesn't that kind of strip agency away from these communities? They're kind of approaching this problem with a very resigned kind of fatalism almost saying that you know this stuff is out of our hands um, we can't tackle it because it's because of misogyny or it's because of structural racism or it's because of um budget cuts um but it's not as simple as that is it it's yeah i i think <clears throat> look tom's right when you look at the research there is no and how could there possibly be any evidential base for saying that uh, knife crime is driven by the closure of youth centres. It would be completely bonkers. Um, but this hints at a deeper point about um, how we discuss these particular young men. And it's uh, effectively what we do is rob them of their agency. We don't think of them as human beings who make decisions about what they do and the trajectory of their lives. I think we see them predominantly as victims of society. And that's why we can say things like... Um, well, this is all the fault of cuts or austerity, or it's all the fault of 
uh, well, pick your pick your bogeyman, really. It's that sense of victimhood that uh, robs these young people of their agency, the sense that they they make the decisions and that they are the important players in their life. And I think that that is where this nihilism comes from. It's telling that this constant referral to these young people have no choice but to act in the way that they do. So I think we need to start treating them as citizens um, and treating them as morally responsible human beings. And we need to start talking about them in those terms. Um, because until we do that, um, it's going to be very difficult to tackle this problem. Before we get back to the last section of the show, I just want to let you all know about our very exciting upcoming online event that we're having on Tuesday the 17th of October. Brendan O'Neill is going to be doing an extra special live recording of his podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, and is going to be joined by the one and only Graham Linehan, comedy writer, gender critical warrior and very firmly cancelled at this point they're going to be discussing graham's new book a kind of memoir of his cancellation as well as all the issues around cancel culture and gender ideology as well most importantly they'll be taking audience questions so you really don't want to miss this this event is online it's on zoom and it's exclusively for spike supporters members of our online donor community so if you already are a spike supporter thank you very much for your support go to the online hub now and claim your free ticket if you're not already a Spike supporter, now is surely the best time to sign up for as little as £5 each month. You can claim your free ticket to this event, many more events like it, as well as all kinds of other exclusive perks, including ad-free reading on Spiked, access to our comment section, and much more. So to find out more about that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. We have seen this week a potentially very important legal victory for uh, free speech. Um, this is about the case of Sean Corby, who was a employee of ACAS, that's the government's um, workplace conciliation uh, agency. And essentially what's happened is Sean Corby made some social media posts on a um, kind of internal workplace media platform. Uh, and what he did was criticize the Black Lives Matter movement and um, critical race theory more broadly. Now, he didn't say anything particularly inflammatory. Um, basically, all he was saying was, um, I don't think that this is the correct approach to uh, mediate racial injustices. Um, there's a probably a more productive way that we can go about having this conversation. And the response of ACAS, his employer, was to tell him to remove his social media posts. Um, some of his fellow staff members complained that they felt unsafe working with him. Um, they said that he was racist for saying these things. Um, Sean Corby uh, took ACAS to a employment tribunal and he's won. Uh, essentially what the judge has said is that um, criticising Black Lives Matter and criticising critical race theory is a philosophical belief um, that should be protected under the Equality Act. Now Luke, what does this mean in terms for protecting free speech legally? Well, we've seen a series of cases coming out of the employment tribunal recently which focus on this question of what constitutes a philosophical belief under the Equalities Act of 2010, um, because if you have a belief um, that is deemed worthy of protection by the Equality Act, then, for example, you can't be discriminated in your employment because of you holding that belief. So <clears throat> recent cases have focused on gender-based views. So we had the decision in relation to Maya Forstata. Uh, her victory was to effectively have gender-critical views and um, the idea that sex is immutable, her as a defined philosophical belief under the Equalities Act. Um, and there have been related cases where effectively 
the the tribunal has said that thinking in this way um, is something that can't, people can't be discriminated against for. Now, the ambit of that decision, of the employment tribunal's decision, is quite narrow. If people actually act on their beliefs, the employment tribunal has been clear to say, well, you might well be able to sack someone for what they do as a result of their belief. So it's a very weak protection. It's an important one. You know, the law is an important regulator of people's conduct. And there's no doubt that these decisions have an impact beyond the courts. You know, when you tell people that the court has viewed this question in a particular way, I think that inevitably has an impact in culture. And people hopefully feel more emboldened in talking uh, and expressing their opinions on these particular subject areas. It's worth also saying Mr. Corby, who has effectively now created um, a precedent through the Employment Tribunal for um, uh, beliefs relating to race. Uh, thank goodness he did, because the, the, the views obviously of Martin Luther King, the views that he was expressing, are universalist, are incredibly positive, and they're really fundamental. They should be fundamental to the way that we view race. The idea that we don't judge people on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character, should be absolutely fundamental to the way that we approach all questions of race. Sadly, today they don't seem to be. But Mr. Corby has now pr pr created that precedent for people to talk about BLM in a critical way and to talk about race in a way which we should all see as very positive. However, uh, as I think was made, the point made on Spike, we can't rely on the Employment Tribunal and the Equalities Act to set to, to, to maintain that culture. We need to fight for that culture ourselves. We need to make workplaces which respect people's points of view, that don't discipline or fire people for perfectly legitimate opinions. We need to create cultures that embrace free speech. That won't come from the courts. It has to come from us. No, completely. I, I share the concern because it feels like through these cases, all very important, hard fought for, I think the Free Speech Union in particular have been doing very good work in supporting these individuals when they want to take it up. I'm always impressed by the steel of the individuals involved, um, which will invo you know, involve going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, not only with their own employers, often having experienced quite unpleasant uh, experiences within those workplaces pushed out smeared and all the rest of it so for those people to keep on fighting when so many people quite understandably would just keep their heads down and have a quiet life it definitely is to be commended and it is helping us make progress the problem is is what i feel like we're ending up with is a kind of list of views that's acceptable to have <laughs> and we've now got into a situation where legally speaking gender critical views and blm skeptical views are in there but that's not how free speech protections usually work you know it's not something where someone expresses a certain viewpoint in society or in a workplace and someone has to go and check the docket to work out whether or not it's allowed or not. But that seems to be the situation, unfortunately, that we're in. Um, it is really striking as well, the terms on which his colleagues tried to have him ousted or at least tried to have him recant his views on this particular social media platform, which was to suggest that um, he was expressing a kind of deeply held hatred towards black and ethnic minority people agitating against racism which in a weird sort of way was an attempt to kind of install like the kind of Ibram X. Kendi standard, like you're a racist unless you are actively anti-racist. And by actively anti-racist, I mean pro-racial discrimination with a progressive sort of gloss. So I'm very glad that that's been kind of pushed back again quite, quite firmly. I'm just always struck in these situations by the abject cowardice of the employers, because in this situation, it seems like, and in various other situations as well, it's not as if this gets brought before a um, employer or a boss or an HR person who is equally appalled by these particular views they probably just want this issue to go away they don't want to be smeared as a racist or as, or as a transphobe or something else as well but just being able to have the conversation as simple as you're being ridiculous in a nice kind of way that's not what he's doing 
he's he's allowed to hold his own particular beliefs. It's just such a hard thing for them to do. So I think if nothing else, the good thing about these um, about these rulings is that they're going to make employers realise that there's a kind of there's a countervailing force now. If someone crops up who has supposedly heretical views on any of these issues of the day, that there are going to be organisations, there is going to be pushback, not least because of the fact that in many of these cases, you're talking about incredibly mainstream, if not majority opinions in most instances. So I'm glad it will make the the, the bosses more scared of doing this kind of thing. But um, it's certainly, we need to go a lot further in terms of protecting freedom of speech. Well, all I'd add to, to Tom's remarks is that this, we, we have to remember that the insidious side of cancel culture are, are really the cases we don't hear about. Mm. So all those cases where people have been put off expressing an opinion because of the climate that they perceive around them. You know, people say that cancel culture doesn't exist because, you know, well, people who talk about it are journalists writing in newspapers, they have these huge platforms. Well, they have free speech, don't they? Of course, that's true. But cancel culture is far more insidious than that. You know, I know that the Free Speech Union, I think, is such an important organisation because it highlights how cancel culture really works, which is to, it, it creates this atmosphere where only one particular opinion is acceptable. And in Corby's case, that was that BLM is the way to deal with racism. This is how you are an anti-racist, you are anti-racist in our way. And it's a complete shutting down of political debate. That's what cancel culture attempts to do. It tries uh, to make people scared to say things that are deemed unacceptable. And I think even though these legal victories are qualified victories and are limited because they are effectively, um, you know, the law is always limited in what it can do. It just creates that gap in cancel culture's ability to control what people say. Mm -hmm. And that has to be a good thing. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.